my great mission is for people to have like a good home in their brains, to make brains a good place to live. Getting Discomfortable with Sarah Payton. Today's guest is an author, a speaker, and a neuroscience researcher. Sarah, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, AJ. I'm so happy to be here. I'm a neuroscience educator, but I don't actually do research myself. Oh, did I say research? Yeah. That's funny because I, when I read Neuroscience Educator on your site, I got really excited because... I'm positioning myself as a shame educator. And so I was like, oh, cool, uh, another educator on a sort of unusual topic. And, and so I'm, I'm curious, like, what, is, what does a neuroscience educator mean to you? Well, to me, it means that, that I'm an interface between my favorite neuroscience researchers and the strange and wonderful things that they discover and the general public at large that needs this information but doesn't really want to be diving into the research papers themselves. So <laughs> mm-hmm. so that's part of what I see. And then um, my great mission is for people to have like a good home in their brains, to make brains a good place to live. Wow. I love that image. Uh, a good, cozy safe, trustworthy home in my own brain. That's definitely something I long for. Yes, me too. So I'm curious. I know that you, I think, have a, I read on your website, a very personal story about how you got into this work. I'm wondering if you're open to sharing some of what your journey was to get to where you are now. Sure. Um, There are so many different places to start, but I think one of the places to start is this interesting thing that's happened with people of my generation and the next generation where parents were starting, you know, parents in the, in the sixties and seventies were starting eighties. We're starting to think about like, how do you parent? What are the effects of parenting? How can we be good parents? Mm -hmm. And a lot of parents did a really wonderful, sweet job of parenting. And kids still came out of their homes going, oh my God, that was a hard childhood. Mm. But why was it hard? I wasn't locked in a closet. I wasn't beaten. What the heck happened to me? And so here we begin to step into what are the second and third generation effects of trauma? Mm -hmm. How do they impact parenting? How do they impact the way people treat their children? How do they impact the way people speak to themselves inside of their own heads? And then how does that affect us as their kids? So my parents both grew up during the Great Depression in the United States and had really intense, difficult stuff happen to them when they were little, tiny people. I recently found um, my cousin gave me a newspaper clipping of my grandmother's divorce from my grandfather describing intense domestic violence and attempted murder that my mother never spoke about. I don't think she even knew about it consciously. So here she is, this lovely woman coming into being a parent herself and really bewildered by how hard parenting was. And of course, what we're starting to learn about is disorganized attachment and how disorganized attachment really impacts the way that brains work and the way that we transmit our patterns from parent to child. Mm-hmm. I wonder, I know attachment theory, I know a bit about it. I'd love to dive into it further, but could you give us a little capsule of what disorganized attachment is all about? Sure. So a lot of writers and researchers say that disorganized attachment is when the parent is either terrified or terrifying. So for a lot of us, our parents weren't so terrifying, but we could certainly describe them as terrified, that there was a frozen fear state within them that stopped them from um, responding, maybe even the way they would have wanted to respond, like that instead of being able to respond fluidly and, and in a reasonable sort of time frame, uh, all of a sudden, here we are with parents who are 
uh, out of sync in a way with their own self and out of sync with their children. Mm. So we have um, parents who are depressed who can't, you talk to them and they can't answer, or you have parents who had really intense, horrific childhood trauma, even up to when they were toddlers, and their memory becomes fractured. And so, for example, with my mom, I would tell her if she did something that was difficult for me, here's an example from adulthood. In adulthood, she would come and visit me and she would like take my stuff that she didn't think I needed out of my house and she would take it to the goodwill. So, and I would tell her, don't do that. And she couldn't remember, like she couldn't keep hold of that request from time to time. Mm. It wasn't something her brain could hold on to. And that's, of course, difficult enough when you're a grown-up in your own house. But if your mom's not able to really track, you know, those kinds of intense uh, experiences of like, hey, mom, please don't do that. Um, then all of a sudden, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it, there's a presentation of a fractured reality. Mm-hmm. And these things are not real obvious, you know? It's not, it's not the sort of thing that you realize is happening when you're little. You don't think about it. You just grow up and there you are dealing with enormous shame states because that's kind of the inheritance of second, third, fourth generation family trauma is an inheritance of shame. Mm-hmm. There's a way that when our brain is fractured, we leave each other and we leave our children. Mm-hmm. And then our children are having to deal with a kind of a suspended and constant state of alarmed aloneness. You use this beautiful phrase, AJ, you used the phrase, I think, conditioned trauma when you mm-hmm. were talking about shame. Mm-hmm. And and I, I do have this sense that that phrase takes us into uh, an understanding of the, like the nervous system expectation of being left alone, not necessarily physically, but emotionally, cognitively. Mm-hmm. Is this making any sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm thinking of. My mentors often talk about Gershon Kaufman's definition of shame, which is a breaking of the interpersonal bridge and how important it is to have consistent repair. And what I'm hearing with disorganized attachment is you never know if the repair is going to happen. So it's, it's, there's no consistency to the rebuilding of that all-important bond between parent and child. Does, is that sort of on the same page? Definitely. Now, a part of what we're starting to get our arms around here is um, is this idea of repair. And it, repair can be so nonverbal. It can be so in the moment, you know, that the parent or whoever is doing the repair notices, oh, I slipped, oh, my attention slipped. Mm-hmm. And then they're able to bring themselves back. Daniel Siegel says that, um, that repair is the foundation of secure attachment, that in secure attachment, the parent is missing the child's cues something like 60% of the time, but has the capacity to circle back around and catch the child and catch what, mm. what was missed. But when we actually get into disorganized attachment, most of the time, we as disorganized parents don't even know that there has been a rupture, that a repair needs to be made. Yeah. You know, you'll see this in disorganized attachment and domestic violence and alcoholism where there's a tearful remorse after every time that something bad happens. But that tearful, that steady tearful remorse is not enough uh, to to transform us from um, disorganized into secure attachment because, of course, the behaviors that are being remorsed upon are so um, are so disruptive and fracturing in and of themselves. So it's mm-hmm. almost like when we talk about disorganized attachment, we're talking about relationships that don't have any repair in them at all. Yeah. You know, I'm really understanding now, secure attachment to me always seems like this holy grail. But to understand that it's not about being perfect, it's about noticing when there's been a break with the child and repairing it. And and that seems very doable. 
a little bit more manageable than trying to be perfect right from the get-go. So that's a really helpful statement. And I'm imagining... In the disorganized parent, you talked about living in this terrified state. So they're, you know, they're operating in fight or flight or something. And it feels to them, I'm imagining, like they're in such danger that that feels so important that they don't have the resources to be thinking about what are other people around me thinking and experiencing. And it just the child's subtle cues of needing repair get lost. That's so true. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. What we notice in infancy is that children need a kind of a crescendo and then a rest in interconnected relationship. So the baby needs, you know, the movement into intensity, intense shared joy or intense expression of distress and then being comforted and soothed and and not being asked to be, in quotation marks, on all the time. Mm -hmm. The removal of attention and then the return of attention has its own good timing when our brains are not fractured. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a delicate dance. A delicate dance and babies need rest. Mm -hmm. Well, when we're disorganized, we can't tell they need rest. Mm -hmm. We're not picking up, like you said, we're not picking up those subtle cues. So I'm hearing that this was something that you experienced and what, you know, what impact did that have on you? Well, it had quite an intense impact on me. And then of course I became a mother and found myself replicating some of these same patterns. Mm -hmm. It's just like, oh my goodness, what a, what a world we live in where, where I can't even stop the forward flow of trauma, even though I know about it and I want to. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of healing since uh, since my son was a baby. Uh, so things are quite a bit better now, but I keep making breakthroughs and then going, oh my goodness, <laughs> <laughs> how did we both survive this life up to this point? Yeah. Most, yeah, most recently I discovered, you, you had a different question, but th- this is where my brain's going. I'm yeah, go for it. Question. Um, most recently I discovered that when I would when I would talk to him, I would have like a hidden knife that would come out and then just flash into his ribs. Um, and, and I, you know, I'd be going along just fine. And then I would, you know, uh, and then I would add, and you're not doing drugs, are you? You know, it just be like this sudden explosion mm. of anxiety and attack that was, that, that was really characteristic of the way that my own anxiety would disrupt Right. and intrude on everyday language. And so I, I, it was about two years ago. He's uh, 22 now, about two and a half years ago. I discovered this hidden knife quality, and I thought, I'm just, I'm not going to let it happen anymore. I'm going to do something really different. I'm just going to use relational language with him. I'm not going to I'm not going to let myself go into those anxious places. I can, I'm still going to go into them, mm-hmm. but just not with him. You know, I'm going to make sure they happen when I'm on my own or get myself out of there. And I'm, I just committed to only using the kinds of language that I really have discovered in my neuroscience education that allow the relational part of the brain to flourish. So that, you know, here he is, he's already 19 years old when I start this, and it's been enormously beautiful for us. It's transformed our connection extraordinarily. And, and here, you know, so here we go. We just, I think we do our healing work and we discover what needs to change and, and we do our changes as best we can and we, and we get tremendous, tremendous rewards. But we have a lot of mourning to do. Mm-hmm. As we walk the path. I like that there's always hope for me when I hear about these stories of repair. Like, of course, we're going to screw it up. But then there's just so much potential for healing, which which gives me a sense of hope. And I'm really hearing that in your story that, you know, we can spend 20 years with someone and then realize, oops, oh, I've, I haven't been showing up in the way that might have been more ideal. But we can work on that and we can do that now. Yes. Yes. 
It's quite sweet. I mean, brains, that's a wonderful thing about being a neuroscience educator is that brains are fabulously neuroplastic. They are mm. deeply changeable and deeply healable. And we never quite know exactly what's going to, you know, going to create the change that makes a brain a good place to live. But And it certainly happens slowly and neuron by neuron, but but it's quite a a fun journey because so much happens <laughs> mm -hmm. there's so many directions i want to go but but i want to circle back what what for you was the kind of impetus for learning how to heal your brain for like figuring that out was there like an aha moment yeah there were a couple one of them one of the aha moments was i, I started to learn nonviolent communication because I was looking for ways to heal my parenting. I couldn't even at that point figure out what was wrong with it, but I knew something was wrong. And um, started to study nonviolent communication. The fellow who developed nonviolent communication is named Marshall Rosenberg. And at that time he was still living and he was still traveling around. He came to the Pacific Northwest where I live. So I drove to go see him. I paid for a three-day workshop, which was uh, something I had never done before. I had never been at any kind of workshop, especially not a three-day workshop. And I had been listening to his CD set nonstop before I went to see him speak. And at that point, he was kind of word for word repeating what he had said on the CD set. And I was like, oh, no, here I am. I've come all this way. What am I going to do? I know all this by heart already. And a woman stood up and she said, we're going to do an empathy circle. I was like, what is an empathy circle? I'll just go to it because at least it's something I don't know yet. And then I went over there and I had been having real trouble. Um, I had an older son, an older son who, um, who we had the delight of adopting. And we got to keep him for a number of years. We did lose him to alcoholism. And death, and mm. but at that point, he was still he was still with us, and uh, I I couldn't figure out how to hug him. It was like when I would go to hug him, my body would just stop, and I couldn't hug him. And I was like, "What the heck's going on here?" And it was embarrassing. Like mm. nobody talked about this. Nobody was out there in the world saying, "I can't hug my child. What's going on?" You know, it was like mm -hmm. this huge shame again. Mm -hmm because it was so different from what the dominant world was talking about. You know, what, what, how is it to parent? If you parent, you just love your kids, whether they're adopted, whether they're birth kids, you just love them all. And it's just really easy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I laugh. <laughs> yeah. But, but I, I went and sat down with these folks and, and the woman said, well, does anybody have anything that, you know, is bothering them? And nobody said anything for a really long time. And I thought, well, what the heck? You know, what harm can it do? I don't know any of these people. And I started uh, to receive what they called empathy. Guesses about what I was feeling and what I was needing. And I had this transformative experience of, uh, of like time traveling. And I remembered, I remembered being a baby, being like a toddler, reaching for my mom and feeling her recoil which was part of her trauma. She didn't want to recoil. She didn't, it wasn't that she didn't love me. It wasn't any of that. It was just hugging for her was dangerous. Mm -hmm. And you can feel that when you're a baby, you're so attuned to your mom. And so it was like in my body, this expectation that my hugs wouldn't be welcome, that they would be too much for my people, that they would stimulate trauma. And, and I had this experience in this resonant space of that becoming so clear and then just disappearing. And I went home and I could, I could hug my boy, which was a, a wonder. It was mm. marvelous. And I was like, what happened? I've never changed like that in my mm. life. I've never mm -hmm. had an experience of neural change. I didn't even know it was neural change then. I was like, what's going on? And I started, that's when I started to read neuroscience. It's like, has anybody studied this? <laughs> <laughs> what happened to me? How did that change? I started learning about trauma. I started learning about what happens with the way that words touch our brain and change the way our brains work. 
And I discovered a wonderful researcher named Matthew Lieberman, who is the author of a book called Social, which is about the, the default mode network, the automatic voice of the brain. And Matthew Lieberman was doing research that showed that when we named emotions, the emotional part of the brain, the amygdala, calmed down, as long as we named the right emotions. Mm. And I was, I was just stunned. This was exactly what had happened to me. People had named my right emotions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so um, that was the beginning of this, you know, whole journey was like, wow, neuroscience can help us see even more clearly how to use language to transform our brains and make them good places to live. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you, you talked a bit earlier about that relational language, um, replacing that inner metaphorical knife that you talked about. And I know that nonviolent communication for me, you know, as I've started to explore shame, I've noticed that there is ways that I can speak that are more shaming and there's ways that I can speak that are less shaming. And I'm imagining that this relational style of speaking that you're talking about is also probably similar to nonviolent communication going to be counter-shaming and connective as opposed to sort of judgmental and disconnective. And I'm wondering if you could give us a sense of like when you say relational language, what does that mean exactly? Mm. Yes, I see nonviolent communication as a bit of a subset of the, of the kinds of language. There's a large sort of, if it were a big circle of um, of the kinds of language that change the brain nonviolent communication is a beautiful way to do it mm. and um, so an example would be <laughs> I, I have quite an example from my mother of translating non-relational language into relational language M- my mom um, as part of the trauma that she grew up with she uh, was really terrified of my she did not enjoy the way that my body was she always had this sense that my body was too big so she would say you know those dreaded words to hear from your mother Sarah you're fat she would say and I would be devastated and I would go and I would try to recover from seeing my mother and it maybe took like five or six years of me noticing first of all that she was doing it because my husband noticed that early in our marriage, he noticed she would say stuff like that to me, and I wouldn't even remember it. Like I had glossed it over. I was so used to her mm. that there was a part of myself that I just turned off when I was with her. So I started to notice, and I started to get support. And people were like, "Of course you're, uh, of course you're, <laughs> you're horrified and ashamed mm-hmm. to receive these words from your mom. Of course you want the person who gave birth to you to love you and to think that your body's just fine the way it is." And And so over these years, then I started to get really calm with her. And one day, I remember she said to me, Sarah, you're fat. And I said, Mom, when you see my body, do you get really worried that I'm not going to be loved and that people aren't going to like and respect me? And she said, yes. (laughs) Mm. Such a little girl's voice, Mm. I remember. And I was and I was stunned, you know, I mean, it had come from me spontaneously. I hadn't planned it. It just came from sort of the abundance of support that I'd received over the years. Because I, I think I just became really curious instead of really offended. And, and the change was so extraordinary. And then for two years, actually, she didn't say anything about my body. Then she started again. I gave her some more empathy guesses and she stopped again. You know, it was quite quite a thing you know here's here's non-relational shaming language that disguises great love um, Mm -hmm. and great worry and I I never you know before that moment I, I just would have thought that she was doing it on purpose and she just wanted to hurt me but you know it turned out to be something entirely different Wow! and I don't think she knew right I don't think she knew yeah in a way, how much she loved me. And I think often we don't know how much we love each other until somebody notices our love. What's coming up for me as you share this is um, I did a nonviolent communication IIT, one of these nine-day trainings. And there were several instances where I didn't show up in the way that I wanted to and I was feeling shame. 
and I felt like I had done, I had acted badly. And these really skilled nonviolent communicators would do these empathy guesses and they would show me that I, my motivation was coming from a place of love. It just wasn't an effective strategy. So even I didn't see that, oh, you're right. It, I, did a, I did a not great strategy, but it really was coming from a place of needing connection and love. And that just, that made me feel less shame about my own mistakes. And, and I'm, I'm hearing that in, in this story about your mother, that she, she didn't know how this was really coming from a place of deep concern and love and desire for you to be happy. Is that accurate? Yeah, happy or maybe even safe somehow. Yeah. Like she, you know, she grew up in such an unsafe world. So I think even more than happy, she she wanted me to be to to be in the world and not be harmed, not be attacked. Yeah, not be hurt. And it must have been a revelation to her even to see, yeah, that is where I'm coming from. And uh, it sounds like it had a real impact, at least the first time. Yeah, oh, both times. Both yeah. times, yeah. Both times it had a real impact, yeah. Yeah, it was stunning, really. I- I'm talking about it, but there's a part of me that's speechless with wonder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I feel that too, actually. Yeah. And I'm curious about, there does seem to be this all-important moment where you were able to transcend the knee-jerk reaction that might have come up in you or that it sounds like in the past came up, this really defensive shame reaction. And, and I'm, I'm curious, is, like, why do you think it was that in that moment you were able to hear it so calmly? Is it because you had received empathy around this issue from other people? I'm, I'm curious how you managed that really important change. Yes, and I think this is where this is a beautiful question. I think this takes us directly into the heart of neural change, that we are changed by gradually beginning to internalize the people who give us a sense that we make sense in the world. If we were visual right now, rather than just audio, I would show you my, my, my fist with my thumb tucked inside. And my thumb tucked inside, uh, Daniel Siegel uses this image of the fist to represent the image of the brain with the limbic system and the amygdala, the the thumb tucked inside the deep part of the, of the brain. And then as you fold your fingers down over your thumb, this represents the way that the prefrontal cortex is kind of wrapped around underneath the forehead behind the eyes Mm -hmm. and stretches back with its neural connections to the amygdala. Mm -hmm. So, so what happens when, whenever we have a sense of being understood, of making sense to another person, is that we, is, we grow, it's kind of the software of the brain. A baby comes out uh, at birth wired to communicate, wired to communicate both joy and distress. Mm-hmm. And the amygdala is wired to reach into the rest of the brain, hardwired. But the brain is not softwired, doesn't have the software installed to reach back and hold the amygdala. That software becomes installed by the experience of human after human or one human time after time saying to us, yes, of course you make sense, of course you're scared, of course you're lonely, of course you're startled, of course you're angry, of course you felt these things because you make sense. That that message for us as extremely social animals mm-hmm. is a message of belonging and safety. Mm-hmm. And every time that someone says to us, yes, you make sense, a new neuron is connected there between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. It's like this is this is kind of literally the making of the good nest within our brains, a good a good brain, good place to live. And so happily, this is the most neuroplastic tract in the human brain, is this brain place that's changed by relationship. We can be changed by relationship. For example, we could have had a terrible life, 
you know, until we're 90. And then just by chance at age 90, we get put into one of these wonderful nursing homes where the people are really kind and understanding. Our brain can begin to change. People talk about this happening to their parents, that they get Mm. into really wonderful nursing homes and all of a sudden they're a different person. And so we are most changeable here. And this is what had happened to me in this experience of suddenly being able to hear my mother differently was I had so many people who had loved and cared for me when I spoke about how difficult it was with my mom not liking my body. And they kind of entered my brain. We do this. We enter one another's brains and become a part of it. So I had all these other people in there with me <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. saying, oh, yeah, Sarah, you make sense. Of course, this would be upsetting. You know? And if you have like 15 people who you've installed in your brain who are going, yeah, no wonder. Of course, you're upset. You don't get as upset. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. you know this is sounds like very intuitive to my experience of shame but to hear the science of it in such clarity is really mind-blowing um i'm kind of i'm kind of picturing and let me see if i get it i'd love to recap here the the amygdala this this very primal protective part of the brain kind of having a one-way street where it can really affect the rest of the brain but we kind of have to develop the capacity and the wiring to affect it or to kind of control, maybe not control it, but like hold it and nurture it and put it in a relationship where there's a two-way street where we can affect it and it doesn't just take over. Is that is that capturing it? That's capturing it, yes. Wow. And it sounds like the the acceptance of other people, them seeing us, empathizing with us, and and saying like, yeah, that makes sense, because we're such a fundamentally social animal, is this opportunity for us to really accept and make sense of ourselves as well. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And that, that makes so much sense in a shame lens, with shame being this disconnector, this isolator, and then connecting with other people and being reassured, like, no, you're, you're not uh, different, bad, and alone. You're one of us. You're totally normal, being such a healing message for shame. Yes, yes. And I often think about, um, about the state of alarmed aloneness in, in relationship with shame. So you've heard about fight, flight, freeze, I'm sure, as everybody mm-hmm. has. Um, fight the, the this phrase fight flight and freeze uh, implies that our only two pathways for getting upset are fear for flight and anger for fight mm-hmm. but my sense is that we have another pathway that we get really upset along that is neither fight nor flight that it is actually alarmed aloneness the response that a baby has and this is from Yak Panksep's work, where he talks about all mammals having a panic grief circuit that lights up when the person that we are missing is gone. And there's an alarm in our being at being alone. So I started to say fight, flight, alarmed, aloneness, and freeze, because we have the mm. same response as in fight or flight there's elevated heart rate there's elevated blood pressure there's increased cortisol there's uh the amygdala running the show rather than the prefrontal cortex but if you think about that experience of and i think shame is a part of of the alarmed aloneness kind of complex of emotions and this is that also is something that yak Ponksep confirms um and what we what we notice is that it's an alarm state, and it's not fight, and it's not flight. It's something different. Mm. So I've started to think about shame very much as a natural uh, outgrowth of our extreme and mostly or often unknown kind of sociability, that we belong with people as long as they are safe and treat us well. We belong with people, 
And, uh, and another researcher who I love is James A. Cohen, and he's the guy who does social baseline theory. And what he says is that if we take a single human and separate them from their tribe, from their family, from their community, from their social group, then the way that they will measure in research is going to be below their average, that we would need to be looking at people within their social groups in order to get their true baseline. Mm -hmm. And that when we remove people from their groups, they go below their baseline. And this, I think, is a huge aspect of the conditioned trauma response of shame is in a persistent experience of being alone. Mm -hmm. So a kind of chronic uh, operating below baseline because of a perceived or real lack of that two-way street that develops when we have a sense of belonging. Is that right? Yeah. And some people say that shame creates the highest flow of cortisol of any human emotion. Hmm. So if we're in, there were just some words that you used that were very beautiful, but they flew out of my head again. But if we're in this, this did you say chronic a chronic chronic sense of aloneness yeah if we're in this chronic sense of aloneness then we've kind of got this elevated cortisol Mm -hmm. all the time and we read it as like that there's something wrong with us Mm -hmm. instead of realizing well of course i have elevated cortisol i'm completely alone here you know i may be being bullied i may be being um, excluded, whatever it is that's happening, or it may just be that I've, you know, broken my own desire to be in integrity, <laughs> in which case I leave myself and then I'm very alone as well. Yeah. yeah. That brings up a really interesting question that's kind of been nagging at me as we've been talking because, you know, and Brene Brown talks about empathy as a as an antidote to shame. And I'm very aware of when I do feel fully seen in my authenticity, it just is such a beautiful, healing, connective feeling. But sometimes there's a space where I really do need to honor myself and connect and belong with myself. And I'm curious, you know, it feels to me like there's this polarity as a social animal between our social needs and our individual needs as a single human. And finding that right balance seems to be a place of secure attachment and a place of a healthy relationship with shame. So I'm wondering if you could if if you could talk a bit about like what what is the side in terms of our relationship with ourselves that we can cultivate, you know, because we want the brain, as you said, to be this happy home. So is there is there some self-work here? Yes, I do think so. And um and I and I think, you know, it can be self-work and it can be work with others. It kind of depends on how safe people have been, whether that whether we have the emotional room to move into relationships with others. It's one of the reasons I wrote my book, Your Resonant Self, was to let people be able to begin to do the work on their own with the help of the book kind of holding them mm. instead of other people holding them. We, and we are also often held and, and grow from profound relationships with non-human things, uh, including animals, companion animals, a sense of nature, mm-hmm. a sense of the divine. Mm-hmm. All of these things will often help us. I remember a very wonderful relationship I had with a stuffed dog. It was just, it was a life, it was a life-saving relationship, you know? And um, because people, people were not particularly safe. And for many people, people aren't safe enough to let us get close enough to have them, you know, be able to say, oh, heck yeah, you make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, there's kind of a deficit in our society. We don't know how to tell each other that we make sense. You know, mm-hmm. we tend to offer advice instead of resonance yeah. or, or tell people to buck up instead of resonance or to tell people that, you know, dismiss like, oh, it doesn't, no, you're a good guy. It doesn't matter. Don't mm-hmm. think about that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, none, of which are, none of which are the message you make sense. And the right. message you make sense is, is an extraordinary message. Is there a space where we tell ourselves I make sense. Is that is that something that we can do? Absolutely. Absolutely. I call this 
part of ourself, our, our, our resonant self-witness. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that research shows us is that if we use our own name when we talk to ourselves, and I'm going to assume here that this works best if nobody's used our name to shame us, right? Because if all we ever heard was our name being used as a, in a shaming tone, mm-hmm. that might not feel very friendly. But if we've had any kind of okay or neutral, even neutral experiences with our name, to say to ourselves something like, Sarah, of course you make sense. Of course you're sad. Of course you're angry. Of course you're struggling with shame. And gradually, gradually, as we begin this as a practice of self-accompaniment, then the resonating self-witness becomes stronger and stronger, more able to hold us. I had experience a couple weeks ago for the first time in this journey, which for me has been about a 10 or 15 year journey, this journey of self-resonance, of waking up kind of into my own arms, like a sense that I was waking Mm. up and holding, holding Sarah with so much warmth and gentleness. And then in contrast, this morning I woke up and I was struggling and I went out into the world. I was walking my dog and I was like, gosh, I'm really struggling with shame today. And I had a couple of uh, interchanges with other dog owners and dogs, and uh, and my spirits lifted. And I was like, wow, mm. I wonder if I was lonely. <laughs> Which, of course, many of us might be during this particular time frame. But yeah. yeah, it's very, very relatable. Yeah, yeah. And so, yes, 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 I think we can be our own resonating self-witnesses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I hear you talking about talking to yourself and that's also something that I do. And it is, it it feels so self-compassionate to talk to myself in a new way. I mean, I used to talk to myself. I wasn't even completely aware of it in a very perfectionistic, self-critical way. And I've been on a journey of catching kind of like how you described that, that, quick knife stab that would come out. I would do that to myself and others. It does seem to me like we treat others and ourselves the same often. So I was stabbing myself and not even realizing it. And once I started talking to myself, like literally saying exactly what you said, AJ, of course you're feeling shame right now. I would start to notice these self stabs and be like, oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) I mean, of course you're doing that. That's You're habituated to do that. It's an interesting process of learning to kind of accept that part of myself as well, because I don't want to shame my own self-critic. So it's been an interesting kind of snake eating its tail, but with self-compassion. Does that make sense? Makes so much sense. Yeah, what a beautiful image, the self-compassion and the snake. And yeah, very sweet to to touch that with you. The the snake kissing its own tail. (laughs) (laughs) Or something about, as you said that, what I saw was like the circle of shame becoming smaller and smaller as we as we kind of create this more and more comprehensive holding of self with the self-compassion. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I like that idea of, because shame, my mentors at the Center for Healing Shame describe it as a multi-headed hydra that's just popping up everywhere on often on both sides. Like if you do this, shame. And if you do the opposite, also shame. So to to kind of be able to gradually bring our shame to one place where we can really see it, understand it, seems like uh, kind of a, a beautiful um, a beautiful goal. Yes, and much like my dialogue with my mother, it's a very interesting thing to begin to bring that compassion not just to the shamed self, but also to the shaming self. Yes. To be able to say when when the voice is like, Sarah, how could you be so stupid? How could you have said that to AJ? Why didn't you say something different? <laughs> mm-hmm. To be able to come to this voice also and say, oh, Sarah, you get so worried about what you said. Do you really want to make sure that the message <laughs> that reaches people actually helps them? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I love that ability to see the beautiful need and value behind a strategy that may not have been the most kind. That's, that's, 
that reframe is really, for me, at the heart of a lot of what I learned in nonviolent communication. And I see you doing it. And it's something that I really long to bring into my daily life more. Wonderful. So I heard you mention your book. Uh, what, what was the title of the book again? The book is called Your Resonant Self. And there's a website, yourresonantself.com. And there's a website, sarahpayton.com. And both of them will take you to, to each other. So yeah, Your Resonant Self is the name of the book published by Norton. And there's a Your Resonant Self workbook coming out on May 25th that can be pre-ordered online now. And that workbook is all about the kinds of unconscious agreements we can make with ourselves that then lead to immense shame. Mm. So if we make agreements with ourselves and then we break them, you know, undoable agreements, I will do no harm, which is not a doable agreement. You know, we can't both be alive and do no harm. You know, we inhale little bugs, for goodness sake. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And that's just a tiny thing that we might do. But if we have that kind of contract and then we, somebody says to us, ouch, Sarah, you hurt me. Why did you do that? Then, then if I have that contract, I'm like, oh, I can't, I can't let it in. I, yes. Or I have a tremendous sense of shame about having broken my contract and I can't even speak to the person to make a repair. So this, this second, the second book, the workbook is all about that. It's so in line with my understanding of shame from affect theory, which thinks of shame as when we have this these expectations or predictions about ourselves, particularly around things that will result in pleasant emotions. And when those expectations and predictions aren't met, shame is how our body reacts. And what I hear you saying with these agreements is a very similar thing. We We kind of go into the future and create this self-image, this idealized self-image. And sometimes it's not realistic and we can't live up to it. And that is often a stimulus for shame. So I'm feeling like these two worlds coming together with what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd love for you to just unpack this word resonant. Uh, You know, what is that? What does it mean? Resonance? Yeah. Um, I think, I think the metaphor of musical instruments and in particular cellos helps us a great deal to understand resonance. So when we're playing a a tune on a cello, the sounds that come out as music have different vibrational qualities and they create the different tones. And when we are humans, life plays on us and the song that comes out of us is really our emotions. And humans not being meant to try to live alone are meant to be calmed and soothed by other people saying, yes, I hear that tune that life is playing on you. Mm-hmm. And, and them saying, yes, I hear that tune. This is what it does to my body when I, when I let in what's happening to you, for example. Or I wonder if you're feeling this because you're needing this. Or I wonder if it's, a bit like this impossible dream guest that I'd like to make for you. Would you love it if, you know, all of these ways of talking and using language that allow for the music that's being played by one person to be caught and reflected by another. Mm-hmm. So resonance for me is a two-person system where, for example, I can have empathy. I can be driving inside my car and pass a street person And I can have empathy and compassion for that person as I drive by. And that person would never know that I had empathy and compassion for them because I don't need to speak to them in order to have it. I don't Mm. need to have any kind of conversation or dialogue or exchange with them. But in order to have resonance with that person, that person would have to say yes to a guess that I made, verbal or nonverbal, about how they were doing. Mm. So resonance for me is the territory of yeses that we create together where, you know, you speak and I say, is it like this? Am I understanding you? And you say, no, no, it's like this. And I say, oh, like this. And you say, yes. Then with that second yes, we've moved into a resonance space. It's empathy, meeting empathy and seeing and being seen and and the word harmony is coming up but i don't mean necessarily peace harmony i mean like literally these 
the the emotional note of one person meeting and reacting to the emotional note of the other person and both of them witnessing that. That's what's coming up for me. Yes, and it's so satisfying, you know, when it's not just direct reflection. But when we have the sense, as I've had in this conversation with you, AJ, of both of us coming together with slightly different ideas to start and finding the places where we resonate together. Mm. Saying yes to each other is so it's a so satisfying. I think it's the greatest pleasure we have as humans. Yeah, I think you're right. And and I'm really enjoying it. I'm I'm really feeling this resonance. I'm I can feel it between us and even over audio and it's feels yeah, it feels connective, belonging, all the good feelings, not not the shame feelings. So uh, I'm appreciating this a lot. So your book comes out in May, and it's a workbook, but the previous book has already been released, so I can start reading that in advance. Is that right? Yes, you can. Yeah, your resonant self. That's right. Excellent. And is there anything else you'd like to share with us as we close up, um, different online offerings you might have, or what else can we learn about you? Yes. Um, my website has all kinds of recordings that I've done about different aspects of neuroscience and language and trauma and shame and alarmed aloneness and lots of things in the store. And then uh, present day live offerings continuing into this year with different kinds of uh, series on relationships, um, on Kingian nonviolence, uh, on self-compassion. So please just come to my website, uh, sarahpayton.com, and you'll find all kinds of possibilities. Great. Well, I look forward to that. And I'll put the web address in my show notes so the listeners can check out more of your work. And if they're anything like me, I'm feeling a real strong desire to dig more into what you're saying. And the research that you've referenced and the books just sound so up my alley. So I can't wait to dive into this world of relational neuroscience. I I never even heard that phrase until I went to your website. So I feel like there's a whole world of knowledge that I'm going to be, I can just tell, I'm going to be like, yes, oh, yes. Like I kind of knew it, but I had never been able to fully articulate the science of it. So you're, I think it's really filling in some blanks for me. So I really appreciate you coming and sharing this with me. Oh, I'm delighted. Thank you so much for having me as a guest. 